from the Gettysburgian and 91.1 WZBT Gettysburg. I am Ben Bunce and this is On Target. I'm Garden Mangala and today on Target we will be discussing the new executive board for Student Senate as well as any changes the colleges made in response to the coronavirus. And then Gari will sit down, has already sat down with Curtis Gray, new president of Gettysburg College Student Senate. Stay with us. So it's been a few weeks since we've uh, done On Target. In the intervening weeks, we have uh, hosted uh, a pair of Senate forums uh, for, for, uh, for the executive board elections. Uh, Senate, regular Senate elections are underway uh, for the upcoming academic year. Um, so let's start there, Gary. We have a new president and a new vice president and a new secretary and a new treasurer and a new parliamentarian and not a new club's liaison. Uh, you want to tell us who all of those people are and, and then we can get into a little bit of how, how it happened. Yeah, so the student senate president for next year is Curtis Gray. Um, he's in my grade, class of 21. Um, he's president of uh, Lambda Chi Alpha. Uh, Katie Troy is our vice president. She's president of uh, Alpha Delta Pi. Yes. Um, uh, also class of 21. And then our parliamentarian is Lauren Browning, class of 22. Our treasurer is Connor Heath, class of 23. And our secretary is Jenna Giordano, class of 23. And so um, the, the, the races for the kind of, as they've been calling them lately, technocratic positions, Mm -hmm. um, were uncontested with the exception of the parliamentarian race. Um, Lauren Browning, who won that race, was one of the unsuccessful candidates for vice president. But let's start with the presidential race. Curtis mm -hmm. Gray beat out Nadine Snyder and Rock Schwartz and Hassan uh, williams Cone. Cone. I'm not, I'm not sure if, how many syllables the last his last name is. But in any case, um, so Hassan and Nadine um, both had experience as senators and, and Nadine and, and Rock did too as, as Senate and Nadine and Rock had experience as Senate committee chairs mm -hmm. um, with Rock having chaired the CLAC as they've been calling it the College Life Advisory Committee and Nadine having chaired the Senate Sustainability Committee. Uh, Hassan had been a class officer in addition to a, I believe a three-year member of Senate. Um, and then Curtis had the least Senate experience of any of the four, um, having served as as chair of the Public Relations Committee uh, during one semester of his sophomore year, and then that really having been it, uh, and it, he'd been a club our club representative um, for ROTC. So all of that is to say that voters seem to value something other than than explicit Senate experience. Um, What'll be interesting is that Curtis is the president of Lambda Chi, um, and and the vice president Katie Troy, as you mentioned, is the president of Alpha Delta Pi. So mm -hmm. two uh, Greek pre Greek organization presidents uh, will be will be leading Senate. Um, Curtis pointed to the Senate Committee on Greek Life as um, as kind of a a, a, a way to tackle, um, you know, as a model, I guess, for tackling campus issues. Um, and, and so in that context, you know, I, I think, well, let me back up. Katie Troy was on that committee back mm -hmm. when it happened. I don't think anyone really thought that committee was terribly successful, including many of the members that were on it. So I was intrigued that not only Curtis, but a few other people, pointed to that as a model for how Senate might engage with issues like Greek, non-Greek relations, or I, I, you know, I think that model was referred to in other contexts too. What was kind of your sense of, of that and, you know, of how, I don't know, and you, we're recording this after you've spoken to Curtis, so mm -hmm. I don't want you to scoop your own interview, but kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, well, like you're kind, you kind of alluded to, we did speak about it in that interview. So if you're watching this on the Facebook Live, I suggest that you 
move over to the podcast. He'll be up in a few days that will have that interview. Um, but yeah, I also found that really interesting. I think that for people that were not in Greek life that are perhaps more critical of it, um, at least personally, I think that the document that came out of that committee seemed very, like we've talked about it before, it seemed very surface level um, and not super informative for people to like really acknowledge the issues within that. However, I think I, I'm happy to hear that people that are involved in Greek life that will also be leaders of a non-Greek organization want to examine that. I just don't know how fruitful or how sincere that will be right now, just because, you know, the document that came out of uh, Scoggle uh, wasn't super sincere um, or that it didn't come across that way um, for a lot of people, myself included. Well, I do. And, yeah. No, I was just going to say, and it omitted mention of numerous key issues. Perhaps. Exactly chiefly sexual assault um yes. but you know i think that that the other maybe shortcoming of that process was that it was never you know at the end of it the committee's recommendation primary recommendation was to continue the committee uh and pat mckenna did not continue the committee said that he was going to continue engaging the issues that it raised never did and it kind of just spoke to senate's you know, I think you can say pretty objectively that Senate has not made material progress on that issue, despite it having been a stated interest of the last several, I'll, just, I'll go so far as to say executive boards as a whole. And, and you know, I haven't yet seen a playbook. And, and, you know, in fairness, they were elected a week ago, but I didn't see anything in their campaign platforms or that they've said since then that has been much of a playbook for what would be different about efforts this time around. Yes. And I think that, you know, your first point about not any really material change within this um, Senate executive board that we've seen over the past year is definitely something that I think doesn't just apply to uh, efforts to um, make Greek life more inclusive or whatever it is that they were trying to achieve in that. I think it speaks to that Senate body as a whole. Um, I can't really name much material change that has come out of this year within Student Senate. Um, it's definitely been a very stagnant year. Um, and then I, I, I think that's also something that at least I, uh, we kind of heard Curtis Gray specifically talk about in the forum was, you know, there, there seemed to be this kind of closed door nature to this past executive board, something of, you know, making decisions and not really explaining them. Uh, something that we kind of heard a lot of conversations about, specifically also in the parliamentarian, uh, not debate, but forum, um, was, you know, the conflicting choice whether to um, uh, consult the Constitution or to consult precedent. Um, and that seemed to be this overlining issue with this executive board of like saying that we are going to consult the constitution specifically, and then instead consulting, um, what has happened before and the precedent of it. And to your second point about, you know, everyone kind of making these promises within the forum, but not really giving any material changes. I think that's been something that we've seen, at, at least for me, I've now seen three election processes and everyone kind of promises the same things. They promise to increase uh, diversity, inclusion and equity. They promise to make Senate work for everyone. I swear I see that on every single, you know, truly make Senate work for you. And I was talking to Curtis about that, that I see it on every single statement of purpose at this point. And uh, now over the last couple of years, we see this increase in conversation about um, making relations between Greek and non-Greek students better. Like I think over the last two years, specifically with Scoggle, and I think also as, you know, people like Rock Swartz have been kind of con using CLAC, um, that committee specifically to um, engage in that conversation. Uh, but yeah, not a lot of material conversation about what we wanted to do with that. We saw it a little bit with Nadine Snyder in her conversation about wanting to have a diversity inclusion chair that sits on the executive board. Uh, we saw it a little bit 
when we were talking to Zeev Carmi, who is an unsuccessful candidate for Portland, Ontario, when he was talking about having someone advocating for international students as a senator. But it's a lot of, I mean, that's that's the thing about these elections. Um, perhaps it's because, you know, the running period is so short that people don't really have a chance to talk about what they really want to say. But, you know, we rarely hear any, you know, candidate running for a senator all the way up to Senate president talking about the changes that they will actually make. Um, and while, you know, people could blow it off and say, well, it's a student Senate for a college, does it really matter? I mean, oh, what we've seen over the last few years, yes, it does. You know, student Senate has um, had a hand in advocating for, you know, housing issues when it came to the Hanover mold crisis. Uh, you know, they're handed policies to examine and try to approve, like the freedom of expression policy. Um, so, yeah, it does matter who is student Senate president, who is everything else. But it seems that and, you know, you kind of acknowledge it a little bit. It doesn't seem like people are voting on policy regardless, even if, you know, we had a candidate who had all this material change that they wanted to make, it's a popularity contest when it comes down to it. Um, we've kind of seen over the years that if there is a member of a fraternity or sorority that is running for student Senate president, they tend to beat out um, whoever's running that isn't. Um, whether that's, you know, to say that, you know, they send a link saying, hey, vote for me into their fraternity group chat, or if there's like a lot of camaraderie there, or if just because they're popular and well-known, they're the name that people click because of name recognition. It doesn't always seem to line up that the person that's most qualified or has the most experience is the person that ends up getting the office at the end of the day. Um, we, you know, uh, Pat McKenna, a member of Sigma Chi, what uh, got the presidency. And we haven't seen that much material change under his presidency. Are we going to see that under Curtis? Frankly, I don't know. Um, that being said, uh, I think it will be interesting, though, this executive board, because also they are, you know, they, they did not el get elected on campus. They are not really having their installation properly. I don't know what training is going to look like, how they're communicating with the current executive board. I don't know if they're going to be there in the fall semester. We just don't know. So I think it's also fair to say that it won't be fair to, you know, compare Curtis's presidency to that of Pat McKenna's or Nick Arbaugh's or Luke Freegan's or whoever's come before, because I don't know how much change they're actually going to be able to make in the face of all of this going on. I don't know how many meetings that they can have in person. Yeah. yeah. You know? I mean a couple of things. You, that, that was a lot of a lot of a lot of different topics you just raised. <laughs> um, we'll try and take them in order. First of all, uh, you know, I think that, in fairness to to Pat, um, a couple of things. First of all, uh, you know, he had three quarters of a year when he had planned to have a full year, and such that, you know, there yeah. were some things that just had to get put put off to the side here at the end. I think he would also say that he inherited a Senate in which um, there were some public confidence issues and that he tried to remedy some of those behind the scenes. I mean, it's a fair question and a, and a valid question as to how successful that was uh, in terms of restoring, or I'm not even going to, restoring implies that it existed, building, uh, you know, broader confidence in in senate um you know i think that the the record there is 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 unknown uh and it the proof you know it, it's hard to know what the data point is we don't uh poll though the Gettysburgian. one of the things that we were going to do this spring is launch a poll uh we didn't get that far and you can all do that later but we don't poll kind of general confidence in senate uh so you're kind of left to anecdote um, anecdotally, I mean, I think that we have seen uh, some some improvements. And Hassan mentioned that he has, over the past three years, seems seen some signs that diversity has improved within Senate. Uh, on the flip side, you know, I don't think that there are a lot of people who would say that that they feel particularly comfortable bringing any kind of issue, whether it's an issue of equity and inclusion or an issue of 
you know, here's a cool idea I have. How do I achieve that? I don't think people really think that Senate is their first place to go. And, you know, if I were to give some unsolicited advice to those who care about Senate as an institution and are still going to be on campus, and I would count myself in the former group, um, you know, until I graduate, uh, but I think Senate needs to have a conversation internally about who it wants to be and what it wants to achieve. Senate works for you is a slogan. It's not a strategy. Mm. Um, and, you know, in terms of, you're, you're right, do you consult precedent or do you consult a constitution? Well, if Senate's if Senate's precedent doesn't align with its constitution, maybe that says something that the constitution doesn't articulate enough uh, in terms of mission statement, in terms of, you know, what are, maybe, maybe the Senate ought to spend time every September internally talking about what are our goals for this year. Um, and that conversation should not just be among the executive board. And I think it's a fair critique to say that in the past it has been. Uh, but what what are the kind of top three or four things that that Senate reasonably thinks it can tackle in one year, and then the whole campus can know what they are, and then they can judge Senate based on whether they achieve those things. You know, is it bringing more transparency to the budget process? Is it allotting more money to club events? Is it changing how that money is allotted? Is it, uh, you know? Is it advocating around sustainability issues? Sure, Senate has had some success. Nadine Snyder in particular has had some success uh, in advocating changes in dining services practices around sustainability. Great. Uh, that's not really part of any broader vision for Senate that at least I can see. And I think I pay attention to this more closely than your average Gettysburg College student. Um, you know, I think that Part of the reason that we come around every spring to this same conversation where people who are running for Senate pledge that it's going to be a more activist body that is a place where campus can turn is that that's as far, you know, we come to that conversation every spring because we never have a conversation come fall as to what that actually is going to look like. I know that those conversations happen internally among the executive board. Uh, this past one, the one before that, I would assume that it did under the Freegon administration as well. And perhaps some material changes have come of that. I think certainly you could argue that the Freegon administration in particular uh, had some success around reconstituting Senate, having affinity groups and, and, and those sorts of things. And I know that while he was parliamentarian, Pat McKenna played a part in that, as did Amy Bosman, who was the vice president at the time. Um, and I think that the, the Nick Arbaugh administration had some had some success in reining in what had been a pretty profligate, uh, you know, in terms of spending institution before. Absolutely. I think he did that at the expense of uh, making particularly the budget management committee a place where people felt comfortable asking for money for things. Um, and, you know, I think that that is kind of uh, one of the potential excesses of of that approach was something that this year's Senate had to address, um, which was, you know, trying to uh, trying to make the budgeting process in particular one that was less intimidating and more equitable, um, or at least perceived in those ways. But again, when Senate doesn't have an overarching at least a well-known overarching strategy for what it's trying to achieve, we're left to platitudes like Senate works for you, like being an activist body, like being a place where campus can turn. I just don't have the sense that campus writ large knows what kinds of things it can turn to Senate for mm -hmm. um, and, and or what kinds of things Senate wants to be turned to for. And again, that's not an indictment of any particular group uh, or, you know, president or executive board or group of senators or anyone. And I mean, that's an ongoing problem that I've observed over the last four years. Um, and, you know, I, every, you know, Pat McKenna didn't have a full year to try and dig into those issues. Um, you know, there were other underlying issues that existed 
uh, in, in previous presidencies, but until Senate decides what it wants for itself, it's hard to really judge it on anything other than, you know, did, do people feel better about it? And until we can measure that in some way, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, I think that, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just don't have a, without, if you can't measure it, it's hard to, to assess it. And, you know, maybe that's okay. Maybe, and, and that's the other thing. Maybe there isn't as broad an interest campus-wide as there is within Senate of Senate being anything more than the body that the administration uses to hand out money for student programming and to, you know, consult when the administration is making decisions. And maybe that's okay. But, you know, I think that we every year hear these kind of grandiose visions and until we can, until members of Senate can articulate what exactly that entails, I think it's hard for anyone to really know what Senate wants to be about. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's a challenge that, that, uh, that Curtis Gray and Katie Troy and, and their administration will have to deal with. And, you know, I mean, I think that to give the most kind of positive uh, or, or, you know, to view the facts in a light most favorable to the current administration, um, you know, I think that there have been some material improvements in kind of the climate around Senate. I think that there have been some improvements in, in some committees taking something of a more active role. Um, the flip side to that, as Nadine Snyder said, is that a lot of stuff gets cast off to the committees and then doesn't get discussed in kind of the, the full session. And maybe that's where some of the transparency concerns arise um, that, that Curtis and others mentioned. So, you know, I, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. And, and I certainly wish all the best to, to uh, the Gray administration, um, you know, and I, I don't think it's, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's the basic principle of it is you just don't know. You don't know what people are going to do. And that's been a thing with Student Senate forever. Uh, you don't know how a person's going to use their presidency until they do. Yeah, well, you know, who knows? <laughs> it's, I understand, and I wish alongside um, those members of Senate, past, present, and future, who want a kind of dynamic student government organization that is out there holding the college's feet to the fire on issues that students care about. It takes capacity built over multiple years to get there. And, you know, when, when you're a member of student senate, your freshman year, sophomore year, you go abroad for one semester of your junior year, so you're not able to hold an executive position that year. And then you come back in the spring of your junior year to run and become a student senate officer your senior year when you don't know anyone who's now a sophomore and you've got new freshmen and all the juniors are gone, it can be hard to see, it can be hard to build that kind of cohesion. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's, it's not an easy task. And I just think that maybe Senate would be well, uh, well off to spend some time thinking about how it's structure and how it's institutions, uh, contribute to what its capacity is or isn't, and then to actually sit down and, and in an inclusive way, including club representatives and including maybe surveying campus writ large, what do we want from Student Senate? And then working backwards to see if that's something that can be achieved. Because I think that the point that Curtis raised, that a lot of these conversations have happened behind closed doors, is at least a fair perception, If even if it doesn't comport with the reality that um, executive members and other members of Senate see themselves, but as some Curtis is something of an outsider. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at, at least he's not someone who's been a senator or been an executive board member before. 
And, you know, I think he's someone who's paid attention to Senate and that's kind of his perception. And, you know, frankly, I wouldn't disagree with that perception as someone who kind of comes at it from a similar level of, you know, involvement or intuition into the organization before. So Senate, uh, vice president, uh, we like, as we mentioned, Katie Troy, uh, was elected over, um, over a pair, Matt James and, and, um, and Lauren Browning, who, um, who will be elected the, uh, who was elected then parliamentarian and, and secretary Jenna Giordano, um, alumni of the first year seminar I PLA'd. So, you know, good people come out of that seminar. It's where Pat McKenna came from. Take it, take it or leave it as to whether that's good people. I came <laughs> out of it. Uh, you know, the jury's still out. Nick Arbaugh came out of it, former student Senate president. Uh, jury's still out. <laughs> Marissa Belanda, Abby Howard, all kinds of, of Warshaw first year seminar alumni uh, come around to active involvement in Senate. Uh, you can probably uh, assess for yourself whether there's some selection bias there. But uh, in any case, that Senate um, and, uh, you know, it's Senate. It has been. It continue to will. It will continue to be. And uh, that's really all I have to say about that. So moving along, uh, also in the news, uh, the college has received, or will soon receive, or is at least allotted to receive, one point six million dollars from the federal government as part of the CARES Act, um, and that will presumably help to plug, help to, but certainly not fully plug a seven million dollar financial hole in this mm -hmm. year's budget, largely associated with um, refunding refunding room and board payments, half of them for this spring semester. Um, you know, we don't yet know what's going to happen with employees. Uh, they have, the, the promise from the college has been to pay them through April 30th and assess from there. And we have not, as of this afternoon, we've tapped various uh various college sources and not yet heard what the plan is on that front um so that jury is still out um whether other colleges have have resorted to layoffs and furloughs and and things of the sort um but it remains to be seen what happens at Gettysburg they have canceled all conferences and other summer programs uh that were to be on campus so that is certainly a blow both programmatically, you know, the Civil War Institute, for example, hosts a large conference that brings scholars and, and enthusiasts and students from across the country to campus every summer. That won't be able to happen, um, you know, as, as well as other conferences that are more revenue for the college. Um, you know, so it's a shame, but uh, the financial picture doesn't look great uh, for higher education institutions in general. And against that backdrop, Gary, uh, we published a piece earlier this week by a student, uh, Ashley, whose last name escapes me. Blackwell. Uh, yeah. You want to give a little bit of the summary of the thrust of that piece? Yeah. It, it was basically talking about how, you know, right now the education we're receiving isn't in line with what we would get on campus and therefore shouldn't cost as much as it does uh, and that we should get a tuition refund. Um, Ashley went on to talk a little bit about like her experiences in her classes and only one of her current classes um, has any meeting time, like live meeting time with her professor. Everything else is just basically videos and PowerPoints. And a lot of people seem to resonate with that specific fact that, you know, a lot of people aren't really interacting with their professors. I personally am, but I know a lot of people aren't. Um, and she ended it with this, uh, um, thought of if you paid for a front row seat at a Beyonce concert and ended up just watching a live stream of it, would you be mad that you still paid for that ticket? And it was interesting because a lot of the comments that we got on the article when we posted on Facebook were people basically agreeing, but more than that saying, you know, that it's considering it ridiculous, I guess, that we're still paying full tuition, um, which is interesting just because I feel like 
I, I find I under I respect that this is an opinion that's coming out now after we kind of seen what the education looks like this way. Um, I find it interesting because now that we're starting to kind of talk about what the fall semester could look like if we don't come back on campus. Uh, I have been interested to know if the college would be, you know, making changes to the way we did it this time, you know, over the summer, what worked, what didn't, um, and how that would change if we would have students that never interact with their professors, if we have an entire fall semester like that, um, what that would look like. Um, that's been something I've been thinking a lot, specifically, you know, there's some classes of mine that, you know, similar to this semester, some classes that just don't really work online, but now I would have the chance to change that. How would that work? Um, I have like capstones that involve like performance work. How's that going to look? You know, so now I'm thinking about that. And somebody mentioned in the comments about that there is a tuition increase coming up this year, um, as there is every year. So uh, personally, I took what Ashley said and considered it towards the fall semester if we don't come back on campus. But I know a lot of people are advocating that they want a tuition refund. I, it's not going to happen. I don't see it happening just because, you know, the college did outright say that it wasn't happening and, uh, you know, also already lost a lot of money with these um, housing and room and board refunds. Um, but I think it's definitely food for thought. And I think more than anything, what Ashley's saying is advocating for, you know, stricter, not policing, but policing of how faculty are running their courses online. I understand that, you know, all faculty are coming at like the technology that we're using from different angles. You know, for example, a comp sci professor is probably doing great right now. They probably know everything they're doing. But, you know, a an older history professor that's been around for a while that, you know, prefers to get their essays printed and handed to them, maybe not so much. Um, so I hope now, on that, that front, let me interrupt and just say mm -hmm. that I received an email from the spouse of a professor who would fall into the category you just mentioned, who mentioned that this professor struggles to use the microwave. So Zoom was <laughs> going to be a challenge. Um, yeah. Um, I, I no, I that, have also heard from other people that this professor is doing great. I, you know, people are up for the challenge, I guess. Um, I hope that people, if they disagree with Ashley, though, uh, on the grounds of tuition refunds, still acknowledge what she's talking about with her experiences with online school. Um, I think that is something that we should definitely be examining, especially towards the end of the semester. Course evaluations are happening. Um, and personally, I do encourage that people, you know, acknowledge that because it's not just, this doesn't feel temporary anymore. This, you know, if you talk to me about a month back, I would say, you know, give everybody a wide berth because this is just for now. But as it seems that this could be going on for a bit longer, I think it's important to critique and acknowledge what's working and what's not so that, you know, we have this summer to work out the kinks and provide a better experience in the fall specifically you know we might have a new incoming class you're starting courses from scratch rather than in the middle of it when you already have a working relationship with those professors and how the course works um and i think that that's a really important thing to be talking about i'm glad that she started that conversation um because uh uh yeah at the end of the day it is a large ticket price on our education at Gettysburg. And just because we're in Zoom University, as everybody wants to call it, let's not pretend that now we're on the same level of like other state schools. We're still paying an insane, not insane, but a very large ticket price. So yeah, we're going to want a better education for that. And just right. because I mean, we're I in think Zoom a couple University. Of things are, a couple of things are true here. Um, you know, the first, the very cold financial reality from an economics perspective is that it doesn't cost a college less to have a physical campus that they're not using mm -hmm. and yet have mostly the entire entirety of the same staff on the payroll to deliver education in a different format. Um, you know, 
one way around that would be to furlough a whole bunch of staff. Um, I don't think anyone really is, and, and Ashley in this piece explicitly said that that should not be the approach. Um, so, you know, that doesn't, on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean that when you can't check out one of the hundreds of thousands of books that are in the library, that, you know, you're getting the full access to what you're paying for. And yeah, there are ebooks, but, you know, that, you know, the, the book collection, the, the actual facilities themselves, you know, I think that if people wanted to go to an online college, they could have, but part of the reason you go to a campus experiences, you're paying for the social experiences, you're paying for the physical infrastructure. And when you're not receiving that, you know, it's not, and that is all under the rubric of tuition. It's a fair question as to whether, you know, who, who should bear the brunt of, of, of that, that cost that accrues regardless. Um, you know, look, Gettysburg is better endowed than some schools. Uh, not better endowed than a lot of our peer schools. Uh, you know, some have suggested that the endowment is a source, you know, if there were ever a time to tap into the endowment, a global pandemic would be it in terms of unforeseen circumstances. There are complicated realities with doing that, not to mention that when the endowment is tied to the stock market or to other investments that are plummeting, you know, it ain't what it was a month ago or two months ago. Um, so certainly it's a complicated picture and you don't want to mortgage the future to deliver the present. On the other hand, you know, it's, it's a absolutely a fair critique, I think, to say that, that you're not getting what you're paid, what you paid for. If you wanted to, I mean, you can get an online degree from a prestigious institution and it costs something different, probably less than than what we're talking about here. So, you know, is it the is it the reality that if you were to start refunding a portion of tuition that that would just blow a deeper hole in the college's budget that there's no clear way to fill? Yeah, it is. I don't know how you how you address that. I mean, other universities are starting to particularly state fund this these problems are going to be particularly acute at state funded universities where there's a great article in the Wall Street Journal earlier today that you know already some states are reducing the appropriated funds that go to state universities um, because of deficits associated with COVID-19. And compounding all of this is the only way a college is gonna be able to reopen like in person is probably to limit the amounts of larger gatherings such that if class sizes are gonna swell because there are fewer adjunct faculty lines available in the budget. Well, then, you know, the only way you can achieve both goals at one time is that if professors start teaching more than five classes a year, which I'm quite certain uh, is not something that many of them are gonna jump up and down to volunteer to do unless they're gonna get paid more, which of course would also cut against what we're talking about here. So, you know, I don't envy those who are who are advocating uh, who are, who are not, who are advocating, who are assessing the financial picture the college faces and, and trying to figure out, um, what to do. But just so we're clear, it's not a tenable situation in the long term. And I would categorize the long term as even for another entire academic year to charge what you charge for the residential experience for a non residential experience. Right. You know, why would anyone pay for that? Uh, if, you know, you can go, like, the reason that this semester is not as, is not the same, and what I, what I didn't agree with in her piece was saying that right now she's receiving the same education that she'd be receiving had she chosen to go to a state school. Well, that's not entirely true because you've had the course of this year to build up the relationships with faculty that you might not in large classes that you would have had in a state school such that you can continue to leverage those but the further away we get from a residential experience, for example, if it doesn't start that way in the fall, you know, it's closer and closer to something that's available at a much smaller price. Uh, and if liberal arts colleges are going to continue to be able to 
articulate the case that there's something unique and valuable about the experience they provide, well, then they're going to have to provide that experience. And I know that, you know, to maybe put a pin in this conversation, Bob sent out a campus email saying that he's forming working groups, which is a very Gettysburg College response, forming working groups to assess, you know, how we provide that experience in this context. Uh, maybe Gettysburg College will be the first small liberal arts college to figure that out. I hope so, but it's it's difficult to imagine a scenario that escapes the basic financial picture we just discussed. And I don't blame people, you know, for not for not feeling like they're getting what they paid for. Um, you know, even if you get some of the same access, you pay for the experience. I think the analogy, you know, the more apt analogy is you paid for a whole behind the scenes package at your concert and you still get all that. You just get it via Zoom. Is that the same? I mean, it's close. It's it's different than if you paid. And I will say, I think it's different and it's closer to what you paid for than had you just paid for a ticket to said concert and then watch the concert online without any interaction expected on either end. I think that's different, but you know, I, I empathize and with kind of the, the point she made. Um, I just don't have a lot of confidence that it's gonna be different. And I think that it's pretty clear that students are gonna be the ones left holding the bag that is a full tuition payment. Yeah. So on that happy note, uh, we'll be right back with the bullet report of which there is none. So that's over. Uh, and then if you listen to the podcast version of this, our interview with Curtis Gray. joined with uh, President-elect of Student Senate, class of uh, year 2020 to 2021, uh, Curtis Gray. Curtis, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess to get started, what made you want to pursue the presidency in the first place? Um, it was something I'd been thinking about getting more involved in uh, for a while, because I was the PR chair. Uh, my sophomore fall and after attending the last couple senate meetings and seeing the way they were run and seeing what pat did and how he did it i was really inspired after a few conversations with him to take the next step in joining senate more fully uh, now, are you concerned at all? Like we talked uh, a little bit in the forum about, you know, you're president of your fraternity. Um, are you concerned at all about being able to fully commit to student center with your other responsibilities in your fraternity, as well as just the general stress of, you know, senior year? Um, I've had that question a couple times, actually. I don't think so, just because at this point, I'm very comfortable in both my responsibilities and what I have to take on, as well as having people in both Senate and in my fraternity being able to help and uh, doing their responsibilities so that I can more effectively lead each organization. Um, yeah, I'm, so I'm not too worried about the time commitment, especially next semester's classes compared to this semester's classes are a lot easier, at least for me. Yeah, uh, speaking a little bit on that, so today we uh, got the announcement that uh, the technocratic elections are done. So you're going to be seeing Lauren Browning, Jenna Giordano, and Connor Heath as the rest of your technocratic um, exec board as well with Katie Troy. Um, uh, does that excite you? You know, it's going to be you and Katie and then three sophomores. So it's going to be um, a big, not a big age difference, but it's going to be a younger crew like it is this year, I guess. Um, are you excited about that? Do you know those... Uh, the rest of the people on the exec board, um, have you guys already been chatting? Yeah. Um, so personally know any of them that well at this point, but 
from the conversations I've had with them, because we have started talking a little bit. Uh, I think that they're all really driven and have a really set vision of what they want to do. And I think that's the most important thing, regardless of their class here, is that they know what they want to do and they can use this year to really start working towards it and hopefully continue to aspire to leadership roles in the future and continue that vision for a set number of years. So I think that being younger might even be more helpful than having an older exec board and having consistent turnover. Definitely. Um, now, during the forum, you were critical of the current exec board for making too many decisions behind closed doors. Uh, can you expand on that a bit? Um, I think there was a lot of decisions that were made that weren't necessarily brought to the senators or the general public as to the thought process behind them. They were just like, this is the decision and this is how it's going to be. Instead of explaining X, Y, Z, this is how it's, this is the thought process we had in coming to this. And uh, even if some decisions that we have to make have to be within the executive board, I think that it's important to explain logic and reasoning for the decisions that are being made. But I hope more so that I'm able to not make decisions on my own, but enable the student body to make decisions as a whole in a lot of aspects, um, not necessarily holding all of the power within the exec board, but being able to disseminate it to the whole campus. It's, are there some specific instances that come to mind when you're thinking of the current exec board making decisions by themselves? So the most immediate one that I thought of uh, during the forum especially was um, Pat and a few other exec board members had throughout the year emphasized that they wanted to follow what the constitution said and not necessarily follow the precedent. And I appreciate that. I think that's something that definitely should be strived towards. But the, the idea that came to mind because it was the most recent was the decision not to let seniors vote, even though if you were to view the constitution, it says that no, uh, any matriculating student should be allowed to vote. And they chose to stick with precedent instead of constitution, which was an interesting decision that didn't really fall in line with what they had publicly been saying before that. Now, also, I think something that's coming to my mind is that the semester you came to Senate with a budget for a ball for ROTC that ended up getting allotted even with a BMC recommendation of zero. And you re referenced it like briefly during the forum as an example of how clubs are struggling to work with Senate, which is something that a few other members of the new exec board have talked about specifically parliamentary, uh, parliamentarian elect Lauren Browning. Uh, how do you think that that situation could have been handled better or more, I guess, more broadly, uh, what about, you know, club recognition or coming for budget allotment could be made easier, better, fairer for clubs? Um, so with that situation in particular, um, obviously my involvement in that club made me want the budget approved, but my bigger concern was the fact that there wasn't much discussion between myself and, or our Senate rep and myself and the treasurer at the time in the sense that there wasn't going to be a, a discussion at Senate at all about it, which just didn't make much sense to me. And there wasn't much reasoning provided for it. And I think that goes back to decisions being made and then not being explained. And I would like to more so allow, especially club representatives and all clubs to understand what is being said. So when decisions are made within BMC, I think it could be important to maybe cite specific passages of the constitution or of the budget um, sections of the constitution and the bylaws for why things are being said and what the evidence is instead of just being like, it says somewhere in there X, Y, Z, and just being able to lay things out a little more clearly for people who might not be as familiar with the documents of the Senate as the executive board is. Yeah, uh, and I think that goes back, uh, BMC has been, uh, I think, the committee that's come under fire the most in terms of diversity, inclusion, and equity, which is this conversation that at least for you and I, we've both seen over the last three presidencies, really. Um, now, that was also something that came up a lot in the forum. That's something that I feel like comes a lot 
up a lot during every single election. Everyone's talking about, you know, increasing diversity, increasing inclusion, um, making it so that everyone feels comfortable coming to the Senate. I feel like every single time I get a statement of purpose, someone says that I want to make sure that Senate truly works for you. Now, yeah. for you, you know, you've seen Luke Fragon's presidency, you've seen Nick Arbor's presidency, and you've seen Pat McKenna's presidency. What do you think that you can do differently that will, I guess, to follow that statement, you know, make Senate work for everyone? And why do you think those three haven't done it already? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's definitely been steps put forth, whether that be committees or statements put forth. But I think that with the elimination of the club's liaison position and having an extra position on exec uh, available or uh, a number to add, I think that's a great opportunity to look at uh, adding someone specifically geared towards diversity and inclusion because a lot of the officers on the exec board and a lot of the people within the Senate have duties set forth that don't necessarily pertain to exclusively inclusion, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think that everyone should always strive towards inclusion and welcoming attitudes of Senate. But I think that if we could have someone dedicated solely to finding a way to do that, that would be really useful for both the Senate and the student body. That sounds a little bit uh, similar to, I think it was Nadine Snyder who was suggesting having somebody. So I guess that you know, segue into that. Um, was there anything that you heard either from this forum this week or the forum last week that you were in from other candidates that you want to implement, um, even though they might not be, uh, they might not have won their positions? Yeah, I think that Nadine's idea of a diversity and inclusion chair was a really good one. And it was something that I had thought of before, but didn't have as solid of a plan as she laid out. So I definitely think that's something I want to evaluate more and talk to her more about to hopefully take the steps towards doing that. Um, something else that we discussed uh, on the panel and that I've discussed more since with uh, Pat McKenna is still having a club's facing um, member of exec and trying to transition a lot of the responsibilities of the club's liaison to the vice president um, because currently the vice president is mostly just in charge of elections. Uh, like Jack worked on the outreach committee as well, but outside of him in the past, it's mostly just been elections. So trying to have someone still responsible for communicating with clubs and being the face of concerns is definitely something we want to focus on, even if we don't have a club's liaison. So we're going to look at the constitution and how to include the club's liaison responsibility with the vice president. Um, another discussion that was had that I think can be brought up with Osagle and do more with is something that rock talked about with more programming that is non-greek centric on the weekends and late night during the week on the weekends so i think that that's definitely something that even if osago doesn't back that senate can back and can plan events to do that uh, working closely with the cab or other organizations to do that definitely and yeah that is something i also want to ask you about you know that was also in some ways, I think more of a conversation that this year than I've seen in the past about the divide between Greek and non-Greek students. Um, and, you know, this will be the second year in a row that uh, a member of Greek life will be president. So before that, we saw Nick. And then before that, we saw Luke. Um, do you think that, you know, you spoke briefly about how you're working within your own fraternity to, um, you know, make that more equitable, both, I guess, in terms of having people involved, but like not having to be a part of a fraternity, but also making, I guess, the rush process more equitable. So I guess before I ask about the Senate thing, what does that look like um, in Lambda Chi Alpha? Like what, what, are you, what processes are you going about to make it more equitable? Um, something that we have started doing in all fraternities on campus actually implemented last year was the uh, position of having a diversity and inclusion chair um, on our executive board in that organization. And basically what that position is in charge of is attending weekly meetings with uh, GLEEK, which is focused on inclusion on campus and providing reports to our chapter every week at our chapter meetings about what they heard in those meetings and how that can apply specifically to us, what we can do. And um, 
something else that I thought was really useful last year and we were looking forward to doing again this year was um, a panel that was held by, I believe it was Anna Perry, Jenna Thorts, and James Mullen about uh, confronting the problems of Greek life where it was basically an open forum for everyone to come speak and ask questions and basically tell Greek leaders what they saw as issues with inclusion in the community and for brainstorming to occur and events to occur. And I think I, we took a lot away from that, whether that just be being a welcoming face to everyone or being more conscious of situations that we might not even think of where we weren't the most welcoming and trying to, uh, I guess, especially at our open events, be more aware of that and present that at all times because that's really one of our goals and so I'm sure sometimes even subconsciously we fall short of it and that's not acceptable and we're definitely working on it. Yeah um, and now how do you think I, I mean I remember that panel that uh, Anna, Jenna and James ran uh, how do you think information like that can be you know funneled down or maybe funneled up in some ways to student senate um, it seems as though, you know, Senate has become uh, the playground for that conversation to be happening uh, a lot. And, you know, we kind of saw that with the Student Senate Committee on Greek Life uh, that we saw under Nick's presidency. But then, I mean, have you read the Scoggle Report or like, have you, did you, uh, were you aware of that kind of whole process? Uh, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I had discussions with a couple of the people on it, both. Greek representatives and non-Greek representatives, and they both, both of the individuals that I talked to felt as though it wasn't the most productive setting for it, and that it was just interviews and a report being published with no real sense of action being taken. Um, and I think something that's been a point of concern for some people, but I think can be a really exciting thing, is the fact that Katie and I both hold high leadership positions within the Greek community. And I think that can be a really good way to bridge the conversation to occur with the Greek community and the non-Greek community um, so that there can be this shared understanding of what is, ex is expected and what is actually occurring. Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions that occur that create a bigger divide than anything else. Because at the end of the day, we are all students on our campus and we should all feel welcome on it and want to hold discussion and just be one community rather than be a Greek and non-Greek community. And I hope that holding a leadership position in the Greek community can allow that to at least start to occur. Right. Uh, and I think one of the bigger things that when Scoggle's report came out, a lot of people took issue with the fact that, you know, nowhere in the document is any issues of, you know, sexual assault or, you know, um, uh, alcohol poisoning or drug use or anything like that. Issues that, you know, we know are prevalent in uh, not just the Greek community, but on our campus. Um, and none of that was uh, acknowledged as an issue. And then because of that, none of that was acknowledged in their, you know, plans of action. And I think in general, that's been a conversation that we haven't really seen on the Senate floor. It's been more about, you know, students don't want to go um, to late night programming that involves Greek life. They want to go to programs that are not Greek life sponsored, but in some way or another, it does seem that that's the underlying sentiment about it, but people don't want to bring that up. Um, do you think that there is any, maybe probably not a Scoggle type committee, but do you think that there is a, a, a committee that we might see or an initiative that we might see under your presidency revolving around Greek life and, you know, similar to the panel that we saw with Anna and Jenna and James, you know, discussing the issues, but not just the issues of inclusion, the issues of, you know, safety and responsibility. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think I said this too on the forum that what Jenna James and Anna did is a lot more of what I hope to be able to do rather than committees, because again, committees meet behind closed doors. You don't know exactly what conversations they're having. You only know what the reports are that are being published at the end. And I think that holding things like what they did can be important because as important as it is to publish those reports, starting a conversation can be 
even better and can continue even further than a report being published because as we saw, the Scoggle report didn't get much farther than being published. And I think that hopefully holding panels about issues like sexual assault and safety um, in Greek housing is something that is important. And it's definitely a conversation that we've been having at the meetings we have with all the fraternity presidents about addressing issues like that. So I would hope that I would be able to combine with them and with Senate to create more overarching forums that reach all of campus for stuff like that. Definitely. Now, now pivoting a little bit, uh, you know, we saw with uh, the voting this year that, you know, as always, we're not really going to see uh, everyone turn out to vote. But, uh, you know, we did see that this year we had even uh, a fewer voting pool. Obviously, part of that's going to be people aren't on campus and 32 percent of the eligible voting population did vote. Um, in this election, do you do you see a possibility of you know movements to increase uh, voting or just general student interest in student senate? It seems to be the same kinds of people that you know we always see at senate, the poli sci econ majors. Um, and is there a way? I know that you were previously on your PR chair um, your first year on campus. Do you have any plans on how to increase voter turnout, but just general population turnout to Senate meetings and engagement with the organization? Yeah, I think uh, watching the Technocratic Forum last night, a lot of what Jenna said is a lot of what I hope to do in the sense of reaching out to people who might not that the secretary can use their position not only to talk to the people that are at Senate every week, but talk to people who aren't. And I hope to maybe talk to ResLife and people like that to have discussions maybe at floor meetings for first-year students who aren't too familiar with what Senate is and what Senate can do um, to maybe engage first-year students a little more with Senate. Um, I think that's the biggest thing is once people get to campus, really showcasing what Senate can do rather than letting them wonder what it can do for a year before they get involved or not get involved at all because they don't know what it does and just having an education around it can be useful. Uh, now, I guess just closing up a bit, everybody has, we, we saw Lauren say something like, uh, there's only so much you can do in a year yesterday. So if you could only really get one thing done, what would be, you know, the mark of a successful presidency for you? Uh, to me, the mark of a successful presidency would be having those tangible things to increase discussion on campus. I don't see, I don't see myself as being someone who claims to know every issue that's on campus or everything that needs to be changed. And I hope to use Senate in a way to increase discussion about all kinds of issues. And if I can create a tangible, like streamlined way to discuss change that needs to be made between student body and the administration, even if we aren't able to utilize it during my presidency because we have to set it up and find a way to do that, I think that if we can leave an effective platform for change in a way that it might not be right now, because like you said, a lot of the discussion that goes on isn't about those important issues or those underlying issues that need to be discussed. It's about the surface level issues. So if I can increase the underlying issues being discussed and really bring attention to those and hopefully start to make change with them, I don't think we're going to be able to, you can't solve all the issues overnight, but start to make change and give a platform to change that can be continued on. I think that would be what a successful presidency is to me. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you very much. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank Curtis Gray for being our featured guest today. 
We'd also like to thank the staff of the Gettysburg and the executive board of WZBT for their ongoing support in this project. Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a joint production of the Gettysburg and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a 2019 graduate of the Sunderman Conservatory of Music. Join us next week. I don't know who our guest is going to be. I know I said join us next week like three weeks ago when we last did this, but we're going to give it a shot because there's only one week left. And then I graduate forever. Bye.